Chapter Three of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Barron's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, The Depot, Barracks and Botany, Settling In. The Isle of Wight is my regimental depot, and very nice too, you might think. But you must not confuse the wartime Isle of Wight with the peacetime version. White flannels, yachts, and romantic hotel life punctuated by regattas were all sent west when the war began. Now you have a mighty armed camp, one congealed mass of khaki. You can't escape. The island is quite small, so you must cheerfully resign yourself to living under the full force of British militarism. It had all changed immensely when I returned this time. The old primitive collection of bell tents whence I had sprung had disappeared and my battalion was now housed in red-brick grandeur. There are large and spacious barracks at the depot, and latterly a myriad of supplementary huts. All this change was distasteful to me. No doubt things were more comfortable and all that, but I missed the old haphazard primitive tents and the sodden field. Things had become more business-like and definite. The buccaneering glamour had gone. Well, I returned to the island and reported myself to the colonel. Reporting yourself to anyone means that you've got to find him first. Not always an easy manner at large regimental depots. An old soldier, however, gets a few elementary rules into his head for this job. If you are looking for colonels, try the orderly room first. If you are looking for second lieutenants, try the ante-room. If you are looking for captains, have a look at the leave book before taking any further trouble. I went across the enormous barrack square, that gravel desert which seems essential to military incubation, and entered the orderly room. There I found the colonel, the adjutant, and a host of minor stars. They had had notice that I was returning, so had plenty to say when I turned up. Glad to see you back again, said the colonel. Hope you're better. I have known this colonel for a long time, as I was in the same battalion with him on militia training before the war. He and the adjutant had evidently settled my fate long before I got there, for I was at once posted to a company and given all instructions. I left the orderly room and set about looking for quarters. I found the quartermaster and also found there was a fearful rush on quarters. The prospect of no quarters didn't in the least disturb me, and never more in this life will disturb me. To one who is thoroughly versed in rolling oneself up in a Macintosh sheet in a clay hoe in Belgium, no quarters conveys nothing disagreeable. Leaning against one of the barrack blocks in a greatcoat for the night is good enough for me. A week in a greatcoat under Westminster Bridge is better than one night in some trenches I have known. Since I had left the island to go to war, the military outfit there had grown enormously. The number of officers was treble what it used to be. All the large officers' buildings were full up. I got hold of a hut that night and kept a greedy, jealous eye on a certain upper chamber in the main block of buildings. The owner, a captain, was about to leave for the front, so they said. I met him in mess frequently and took an immense interest in his departure. He had been out before, but had now finished his light duty and was waiting for the word to go out again. One day he went, and I got his room. I know of nothing with the exception of a base camp quite as distressingly plain and uninteresting as the average barrack quarters. This room I had got was the plainest of plain cubes. It had the barest necessities in the way of furniture, a large plain window, no blind, no carpet, 
and a small wooden board hanging up on which was printed a list of the meagre articles which had been supplied by the quartermaster's stores. I don't mean to say that this was a unique room. All barrack rooms are the same. After all, why should they be different? They are only meant as a case to contain you at night, to keep you safely till the next day, when the adjutant gets you in his grip again from about 6 a.m. onwards. You mustn't look for domestic pleasures in an army. You are one of a vast horde of trained gladiators. You are only alive by an accident. The proper use for a soldier is putting him on to shooting, clubbing, or sticking someone else who happens to get in the way of his country's welfare. Unless he is in one of those attitudes, he is wasting the country's money. A certain amount of time is, of course, allowed for perfecting these arts. Anyway, bothering about such things as window blinds, carpet on the floor, etc., is sheer froth. This necessary simplicity and Spartan atmosphere doesn't end with your room. In fact, you'll soon find out that this forbidding cube is about the best place in the whole barracks. Your window looks out onto about six acres of gravel. Round this barren waste are ranged a series of oblong red brick blocks like so many workhouses. It is here that the soldiers are kept. Behind these outrageously ugly buildings are others nearly as bad, but not quite. They comprise a variety of offices and stores. The chances of the owners of living there longer than an ordinary soldier puts in generally lead them into such anti-military acts as growing a geranium in an empty ammunition box in the window, or training a bit of something up the wall. Three sides of the square have to put up with what I have described above. But on the fourth side you come to the piece de resistance, the officer's mess. It is just like the other huge blocks in shape, but has a few extra adornments stuck on the front. You generally have to go up some steps to the entrance hall. Some garden beds are under the windows. Perhaps some tender-looking pansy faces gaze out from amongst a geranium or two. What a mockery! Pansy faces and geraniums for a soldier. His job is gravel squares, rations, feet inspections, and shooting or getting shot. Away with all this sentimental pansy business. The two main component parts of the officer's mess are the ante-room and the mess-room. They are both plain, but might be worse. I'll take the ante-room first. It is very large and furnished, mainly with leather chairs and divans, tables for matches and ashtrays and tables for papers. The wall decorations nearly always consist of one or two portraits of royalty or famous generals, an engraving of Wellington meeting Blucher, and the intervening spaces are filled up with subscription lists for things you haven't either the time or the inclination to take advantage of. Now the mess room. Empty except for several long tables and a sufficient number of chairs to accommodate the surging mass of officers which debouches into the room three times daily. This is a barracks, and this was where I now had to put in two months, light duty, when you are in a precarious shell-hole, with shrapnel squibbing overhead at 4 a.m. in France, you look back on barracks as one of the bright spots of life. When you get back to those barracks, and have had a week of them, you'd pay quite a handsome sum of money to be miraculously transported back to the shell-hole. Anyhow, that's how I felt after the first week of two months' light duty. End of chapter 3 Recording by Philip Gould